You're listening to Sustainability Inc., a new limited series podcast from Boston Consulting Group, produced by Fortune Brand Studio. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fortune. Hello, I'm Gaia Vince, host of Sustainability Inc. Throughout the 12 episodes in our series, we'll be delving into the innovative, inspiring missions of top companies around the globe, talking to the business leaders at the front lines of achieving real climate impact. With the stakes higher than ever and the opportunity to make a difference greater than ever, these are the stories to inspire us all to join the urgent fight for true sustainability. Our global societies are built on a production model that begins with resource extraction, involves some kind of processing to make the things we want and need, which are then bought and used by us. And then when we've finished with them, we throw it out and start again. The two biggest problems with this system are that we're running out of resources and that we're generating a lot of waste. And waste is the fourth biggest sector of greenhouse gas emissions. In biology, it's different. In a natural ecosystem, everything is used and recycled. Waste is always useful to something in nature. If we're going to transform our economies to make them sustainable into the coming decades, we have to tackle our waste problem. With me is Shalini Unikrishnan, Managing Director and Partner at Boston Consulting Group. So waste is an inefficiency, essentially. And as we move to more sustainable business practices, we want to cut down on waste. We want to cut down on unnecessary loss of energy, materials and resources. And what are some of the challenges to making real impact and progress towards these goals? That's a big question because there's so many challenges. One of the issues in this space is that this is not a single problem with a single point silver bullet solution. The problem exists across the value chain. It is right from the beginning, we need technological innovation and new solutions. We need differences in or changes in how companies are producing their products. And we need all the way down the chain, changes in how we as consumers are consuming these products as well to reduce waste and pollution. So there are technical problems, regulatory challenges, consumer preference changes, supply of materials, all of these problems to tackle. And for businesses, that all happens in a context where every country, sometimes even city by city, has different regulations, different preferences, and different supplier contexts. So it is a very complex problem that needs to be addressed. The choice of materials used to create the items we use every day is a key part of the waste reduction puzzle. Finding recyclable alternatives, reusing what we can, and improving supply chains are all steps that companies can take to reduce manufacturing waste. Prakash Arankundram from Logitech is here to discuss how the company handles this in the technology space. So when we talk about the race to sustainability and we talk about decarbonizing and reducing our environmental footprint, one of the things we're talking about really is getting away from this very linear model of creating something which then becomes waste and needs to be recreated in order to produce a new product all the time. How important is it to get away from this linear model? It's very important. We know that for the future generations to enjoy the world we have, 
we actually have to act now and act with a sense of urgency. And uh, this is one of the driving forces behind us as Logitech committing to be climate positive starting 2030. And the goal there really is to take out more carbon than we create. And the only way we are going to be able to get there outside of the things that we are doing on renewable energy, on reduction efforts, on renewable restoration efforts on NitroBase, is to really think about circularity. Think about it from a business model perspective, but also think about it from reuse of products and reuse of materials. If you really think about 90% of the world's intellectual capital goes into creating new things, only 10% in managing waste, if at all, if I'm being generous. And really, we're looking to really challenge that notion. How could we change that fundamentally? How could we extend the life of the products we create? How could we have you use more of the products we create? How could we recycle some of the things that already exist and put them back in the flow? And that's the question that we're constantly challenging our teams from a design perspective. That's been a core focus at Logitech. As part of every new product launch process, along with cost, along with the schedule of the product, when it's going to come out, along with the experience it hopes to deliver, we have a key gate, which is to actually have the carbon footprint that it generates be lower than its predecessor or lower than the average for that business unit. There are three key elements within that. So what we call a DFS, Design for Sustainability Strategy in, within the company. How do we think about new ingredients, everything from mushroom packaging and the like, to how do you make footprint smaller in our electronics, in our use of power, in packaging, in all those elements? And then how do we inject new things that already exist in some ways? back into our chain. So this is kind of the design thinking that goes into every product development process. There's a, quite a lot of questioning on, hey, how did you improve the carbon footprint of these products? I think that's really key, isn't it? Now, e-waste is very differently handled in different nations, in different regions. The European e-waste directive, for example, puts a lot of the onus back on the producers of that. But in many poor countries, e-waste is a huge and growing problem with a lot of toxic metals, people having health risks, it's polluting environments and so on. What's being done and what could be done better in the sector as a whole to try and recover that in a safe and responsible way so it's not causing these pollution and public health issues? Yeah, I think firstly, I would say the electronics industry has come quite a ways. There are many different consortiums that are thinking about this. We are part of this group called RBA, Responsible Business Alliance, along with other tech companies, really thinking about hazardous materials, like things that actually are bad in use in manufacturing, bad in use in landfill. How do you prevent them from coming in? So as an example, a couple of years ago, we put in place a program to get rid of PVC from all our products. So we went entirely PVC-free. We have a zero plastic use policy in our packaging. We're trying to actually influence, in some sense, the thinking around asset recovery, which is you had an old part that actually has some copper in it, that has some potentially cobalt from battery that you had. How do you recover that? And I would say the science is not there yet on actually getting asset recovery at scale. I would draw inspiration from the automobile industry Automobiles are the most recycled products out there in the sense that if you went and bought an automobile, the metal that you get, the aluminum that you get, is actually some portion of it is recycled from a junkyard some point in time back. We're going to get there in tech. We're probably a few decades behind, and the technology is a little bit more complicated, especially as you think about semiconductors and the extremely small miniaturized products. We're constantly thinking about this problem. What can we do 
to actually not only safely extract these materials, which end up in emerging countries because of labor reasons, cost reasons, and other things, but how do you make sure that the philosophy around managing this from a social perspective and the science behind it from an environmental perspective actually meet together? So this is definitely an industry-wide problem, but I'm quite encouraged by how far we've come. Do you get a sense that the mood is changing among tech companies and this sort of issue is much more of a concern than it was before and responsible ownership over these materials is growing? I think so. We are collaborating in our supply chains in a way in which we hadn't in the past. The same recycled plastics that we generated that come in now 30 different colors. We figured out the different technology behind making it work so that there is no trade-off from a consumer experience perspective. We worked with those same partners that we worked with and actually encouraged them to work with others so that we can expand this thing. And hopefully one day you'll get a PC or a Mac or something with the same plastics in them, right? Like that's the aspiration. As Logitech, we want to actually give back as much as we can. And I'm seeing this across the board in the technology sector. How can governments, as well as industry, speed up the recycling of these materials so that they're not ending up in waste when they're in so much demand? We need easy access to recycling. In a lot of places in the world, it's not easy to just return your product. So that's the first policy government action that's kind of required, which is access to take back to become easier to do that. And then the second is some kind of incentives or real focus around asset recovery as an industry and a support to this asset recovery idea. There's a lot more talk about renewable energy because we kind of know the science behind renewable energy and we need to completely nail it as a society. And also there's going to be a material shortage at a broad level. But if you just forecast where this is going, you're going to run out of stuff to use to make new semiconductor parts, to make new metals. So you have this challenge, which is a scientific challenge that needs funding, that needs research, that needs policy to really go figure out how to stand this up. But then at the end of the day, there are consumers, you and me, who are buying things. And we have such a big voice in how we shape this. And that's what I'm inspired by every day. You know, I see this tremendous shift in consumer voice that actually is demanding more and more of this. So that's why I'm optimistic. I think we can actually figure this out with that kind of backing. And I think with that kind of presence from a consumer voice standpoint, I think you would get much further along in this carbon transition that we're looking at. And we might not solve all the waste problems we created, but there is enough technology out there to actually address a large chunk of it. A big transformation is underway, and that is inspiring. The more companies that adopt this mentality, the better off we are. So, Shalini, what do current corporate goals against this crisis look like? What are the benefits of changing practices in this area? We see companies more and more setting bold ambitions and goals to tackle the problem. They're looking at rethinking their business operations. They've set goals to reduce the amount of packaging or making the packaging lighter. They've got you know, one fifth of the world's largest 2000 companies have made a net zero pledge. Many in line with science-based target, the number keeps growing. So we're seeing growing ambition for businesses to engage within their manufacturing and up and down the value chain with their suppliers, with their consumers. So it's an exciting time in terms of business aspiration to address these challenges. Addressing the complex issues in supply chains and improving efficiency in both operations and in the products themselves are some of the ways businesses can innovate. 
Ritesh Nambaturi, who's Director of Innovation for Good and Sustainability at Cola, explains that the company is using targeted product design to minimise waste and pollution. When we turn the faucet, out comes a gushing, ready supply of water. But that requires a large system that we don't all see ourselves, a system of water filtration, of capture, of storage. And that's being threatened as the climate warms and droughts, particularly hitting some states, particularly Western states, but also worldwide. It's a huge problem. And so reducing the amount of water that we use is really important. And I know that some of your products have really innovated new ways of doing that. We're a global plumbing manufacturer and we make plumbing products which fundamentally use water. It is our intent to drive consumer awareness and education and make it easy for our consumers to reduce their own environmental footprint. And the way we can do it is really embedding that innovation into our products We've got a whole product line that's focused on what we call water efficiency improvements. So we've got under the plumbing product portfolio, we've got a program that we've been part of with the US EPA for a few years called WaterSense. We've got several hundred products across our product line that are certified to be labeled with the WaterSense label, and they really signify extreme water efficiency without compromising user performance and user experience. So you've created water sense products that are low flow. They release less water when you turn the faucet handle on. Are you getting requests for more of these sorts of products? Yeah, absolutely. If you think about the market, there are a couple of different levers, a couple of things going on, I should say, as trends. First is drought, right? So there are many parts of the world, including parts in North America, that are significantly water stressed. So that by itself is driving the need for more water efficient products. The other big change we're starting to see is regulations. Many utilities and many states are starting to regulate the amount of water use. And then I'd say the third trend that's starting to emerge more and more is consumers are really seeking out products that are water and energy efficient. And they want to be able to do that without actually compromising on the experience of what they, or the functionality of the product itself. Water waste is something that many companies have yet to really get behind. Why do you think Kohler has moved in that way? Yeah, I think it really does come down to what is material to our business. And water is truly foundational to our business, whether it's our operations or our supply chain or our product development and product design itself. We're in the business of using clay to make ceramic products like toilets and sinks. And that's an energy and water intensive manufacturing process. You know, we have our water goals. Every year we try to reduce our water footprint, our operational water footprint, along with greenhouse gas and waste footprint. We also focus on water to reduce it at a certain level compared to prior levels so that we're contributing to the local watershed at some point positively or favorably, I should say. As we look ahead, we have to be at the forefront of thinking and continue to drive leadership as we have been over the years in water efficiency to develop solutions that are in some ways independent of the water situation is in that local region that we're selling to. So again, driving innovation from a water efficiency and product design perspective is key. And one of the things I want to quickly mention uh, as a proof point to that is a partnership we just launched last year called the 50 Liter Home. The goal of this partnership is to bring innovations to market that can reduce residential water consumption down to 50 liters per person per day. That is key, isn't it? Trying to get household water use down considerably, this 50 liters a day initiative. 
What are you looking for to speed up your goal of reducing water waste? Yeah, I think it would absolutely help if government and other entities would come in this. This is not something we can solve alone. That's why we're partnering with NGOs or large corporations or even other thought leaders like the World Business Council for Sustainable Development and others as part of the 50 Leader Coalition because it's going to take a systemic change to implement solutions at scale to solve this problem. But how can we incentivize consumers to actually save water? Today, there's no strong financial incentive in there for them. So how can we change that model in a way that they are actually looking forward to and inspired to changing their habits in a way that also helps them save water and are incentivized to do that? I think there are absolutely other entities like the public sector that we would want to work with to bring these solutions to market at scale. You not only reduce the amount of waste that you're producing, but you're also producing something which has a use of its own. That's really important if you're going to be economically viable as a company. Yeah, you know, I think it's important that we start to look at sustainability as a business opportunity and not just as a hobby. So it's important to drive self-sustainability or financial self-sustainability for these opportunities so that we can drive scale over time. Absolutely. So this can make sense from a financial imperative as well. If you're creating less waste, you're using fewer materials. So there's also an economic incentive, isn't there? There absolutely is. There's also the aspiration to make our operations more efficient over time. It's not to say that as we do projects like the Waste Lab, we're going to continue to generate more and more waste in our factories and use that waste to make new product, which is a fantastic idea, and we're going to continue to do that. But that doesn't really give us a permission to be more efficient in our operations in the first place. And we're doing both. Water is one precious resource we need to stop wasting. Managing food waste is another. Roughly one third of food produced for humans is wasted globally. And it contributes up to 10% of our global emissions. We need to target food waste. Charlene, what are the challenges here? Food waste is a massive challenge. 1.6 billion tons of food is getting wasted a year. That number has continued to increase. It's a meaningful contributor to greenhouse gas emissions. If you take developing countries, you see that the problem is much more on the front end. It's a lot of food waste at the farm. And if you take developed countries, a lot of it is at the last stage, which is the consumption. So there are in food waste five main categories of challenges. One is awareness. Most of us as consumers actually don't understand, and it's not just consumers, it's providers, restaurants, hotels, etc. We don't necessarily know or have the information on how to optimize or how to make choices to minimize food waste. So one example there is most of us think that fresh food is always better than frozen food. But in fact, actually going for fresh food forces a supply of items that are actually out of season, increasing the amount of waste and increasing transportation costs. And so awareness building is a big part of the problem. And retailers and companies are doing a lot to try to get consumers to understand the choices that they have. The second part of the problem is supply chain infrastructure. So for developing countries especially, there is a lot of infrastructure lacking at the farm level and in the cold chain that could significantly preserve and extend the life of products. We know of innovative companies that are creating smaller size warehouses and supply chain solutions that fit much better with a developing country smallholder farming context to address these problems. 
The third issue that we see is supply chain inefficiencies. So companies along the supply chain actually need data and information on where the waste is happening. They need to give signals and information to farmers so that the right kind of dynamic pricing can happen. Collaboration is needed up and down the value chain so that the right demand signals are sent back. And of course, policy environment. We need the right policy environment to ensure that we're not promoting waste. One example that we gave in a report that we did recently is that there's some arbitrary cosmetic standards, for instance, on the size of blueberries that are appropriate for fresh sale in markets like China. And that actually promotes waste rather than reducing the waste in the system. So there are issues along all of these, and we see companies taking innovative action to inform consumers to create more transparency in the supply chain, as well as to modify and influence regulations with things like sell-by dates and other information on the package itself. As regulations evolve across businesses, one innovative biotechnology company is reducing food waste by getting inspiration from how natural ecosystems recycle waste. Kieran Whitaker, CEO and founder of insect farming company EntoCycle, explains. So one of the biggest problems we have when it comes to decarbonising is agriculture, actually. So enormous amounts of carbon are uh, emitted through the agriculture. So you've come up with something which might help with that. Tell me what you're doing at EnterCycle. So EnterCycle, we are the insect farming technology company. So we use kind of cutting edge automation, computer vision, literally the kind of 21st century's best technology to farm insects. Why do we farm insects? Well, first of all, insects are a natural part of every animal on this planet's diet. So two thirds of the world population eat insects to date. Free range chicken is happy picking around looking for uh, insects in the field. It's called fly fishing because that's how you catch fish. All animals eat insects as a natural part of their diet. And yet we don't do this at scale to create a sustainable protein source. And as our human population grows, we're going to need more agriculture just to feed people. And obviously the oceans are also overfished. So insects seem like a sensible way round that. But you're talking about a different sort of insect. And tell me the advantages of insects. So we use a specific insect called the black soldier fly. The reason for using a black soldier fly is many fold, but the predominant ones are, first of all, in 2017, the EU permitted five insects. Of those five insects, you have the kind of mealworms, crickets, grasshoppers, and black soldier fly. Now, so legislation is the most important part. You know, if it's not legislated, you can't use it. But predominantly, most of the farms in the world are actually using chicken feed. So it might be a slight improvement on the conversion ratio, but you're still using a feedstock that, you know, has the same issues. So black soldier fly can essentially, they can eat our waste. Yeah, exactly. So just to kind of follow on from that. So black soldier fly larvae are happy to eat any organic residue. So everything from fruits, vegetable waste, beer, whiskey waste, all the way through to even, you know, latrine waste for humans. Uh, I know it might sound quite gross, but reality is all of these types of waste streams in Europe and the West, we have to focus on the legislative streams. They all contain value, they all contain energy. And what the black soldier fly larvae can do is they can grow within nine to 12 days from the size of a grain of sand into an inch long protein bar. So they grow about 5,000 times their body mass in that period of time. 
So again, compared to a, a grasshopper or a mealworm, which takes kind of five to 12 weeks to grow, we're talking nine to 12 days. So it's this supercharged turbo growth of sustainable protein. It seems like the perfect pet and certainly the perfect food source. Which animals would receive this feed? So we're very much following again the legislative landscape. So in 2017, as I said, both pet and aquaculture were permitted. So they are the two first target markets. So you have a humanization of pets, especially in Europe and North America, you know, especially during lockdown, they've had millions of more pets and people are actually caring about the paw print of their animals. And so they want to know about the sustainability of their feed. So we're seeing huge growth in the pet food industry. The second industry, of course, as I said, is aquaculture. So we're building Ento Farm 1, which is the UK's first industrial insect farm in Scotland. So the legislative landscape, again, has meant that it's gone from a novel food and is moving into a traditional protein. So you're seeing all markets open up for insect protein, which is a fantastic opportunity for us. It's really, really important, not just for the sustainability of the locality, but also the environmental sustainability. And tell me about the sustainability of your own production facility. So black soldier fly produce their own waste, right? What happens to that? So that waste, and I'm using my fingers here, is a product called a frass. And actually, so frass, which basically means insect poo, think of a worm. So what happens when you put food into your food bin and a worm digests it, it leaves you with a fertilizer. So we actually are creating a sustainable biofertilizer that doesn't require any kind of carbon input. So the Harbour-Bosch process to create current fertilizers. And importantly, it's also a peat-free sustainable. So we are working with kind of three academic universities here in the UK and about five commercial partners testing out our product into growing plants more sustainably. And we're already starting to see plants grow twice as size using a small inclusion of frass because it has this immunostimulant burst. It basically makes the plants healthier and helps them grow bigger with more fruiting bodies. The industry has grown too, with a lot more interest from financial backers it feels like an exciting time to be an insect farmer. In the US, in terms of the investment landscape, you know, this is going to be a multi-billion dollar industry by the end of the decade. You can see that by the amount of investment pouring into the space, in terms of the amount of companies that are now kind of, as the industry matures, is now specialising. It's fantastic and it's great to be kind of at the front of this charge and really involved. Yeah. How do you see this scaling up? So in the UK, we very much see a kind of build, own, operate model. So we use our technology to build our own facilities to sell the product. But the reality is we're going to be 60 million tonnes of protein short. So as we have a growing middle class that has a growing kind of westernised diet, that's going to put an incredible pressure on the global food system, not just the UK food system or the US food system. And so we see the opportunity here as very much as licensing. We want to see, you know, almost like the intel inside. We want to see our technology in as many hands as possible. So licensing our technology into third parties, whether that's traditional food manufacturers or kind of new companies entering into the space, we want to be the ones providing you with the technology to scale. What's going to be really exciting, what's going to happen next, is you are seeing more and more investment into the kind of alternative landscape agenda. And I don't just mean that just in food production. You know, we're talking from energy to food. And so, you know, where I think the kind of real future will happen is when you combine the products of different companies. So, for example, ourselves with kind of enzymatic protein production or algae protein production to create a truly sustainable local food production system. EntoCycle is carving an innovative path to future food production that deals with waste right from the start. And that's something that each of these companies has embraced towards meeting their sustainability goals. But none of them is acting alone. The fight to end pollution and minimise the waste that we produce is a collaborative one. 
So Charlene, how are companies engaging with each other towards this shared goal? We see companies coming together to collaborate in a few different ways. One is that they are coming together to create or influence standards. And standards are really critical to reduce the cost for businesses to actually comply with regulations and changes. The role of private sector to influence and create a global framework for action to influence standards is really important. The second thing we see companies come together to do is set bold agendas and goals together. And that's really important to create momentum in an industry and to motivate action. And the third thing that we see companies come together, which is really exciting, is actually sharing information and sharing innovation and trying and experimenting with new models. And we see that collaboration happening, not just within a sector or an industry, but across the value chain, across sectors and industries as well. And how does regulation come into play for global corporations looking to decrease waste and pollution? Without a global regulatory framework, what you end up with is a lot of disjointed efforts that don't connect into each other and don't reinforce each other. Baseline data is lacking, infrastructure is lacking, and all of these require companies and governments to come together and invest together. And this is where regulations can create a common framework for action and create momentum on the problem collectively. Waste and pollution are bad, ugly and unhealthy. Eliminating them should be a no-brainer. And yet we've been very slow to act as a global society. But transformation is coming. Resource limitations alone are pushing us to reduce, reuse and recycle. The environmental and financial benefits of treasuring our trash are immense. Sustainability Inc. is a Boston Consulting Group podcast produced by Fortune Brand Studio without the participation of the Fortune editorial staff. Join us next time to learn from our guests just what it takes to make sure the livelihoods of the people behind their businesses are as sustainable as the products they sell. Thank you for listening to Sustainability Inc. Please subscribe, download and leave comments and ratings wherever you listen.